0: Hello, my name is Janice B. Gordon and this is Scale Your Sales Podcast. Welcome to Scale Your Sales Podcast, listed number 9 of 43 podcasts for every sales professional. I am Janice B. Gordon, the customer growth expert, recommended by LinkedIn Sales as one of 15 innovating sales influencers to follow. In today's episode of Scale Your Podcast, my guest talks about how he uh, started in sales and being very much a capitalist and a realist uh, in his motivation moving from engineering, electrical engineering, in, into sales. And we really delved into re- the differences between selling in the US and, and selling in the UK and then he talked about the, how salespeople re, must reduce anxiety and uncertainty and making sure the third element to that is that they have a step by step plan. This is a really great insight that you could use not only in sales, but in, in your life, in the way that you bring people on board to your journey. So make sure that you listen to this episode of Scale Your Sales podcast. My next guest is a global sought after sales trainer and consultant who has built a 20 year career as a top sales executive, becoming president of global sales and marketing for a $420 million company. He is the author of 16 books On sales and motivation and recently launched the sales velocity academy learning platform with over 600 video courses. In 2018, he was the first to publish AI's impact on sales in his book, sales ex machina, how artificial intelligence is changing the world of selling. Welcome to Scale Your Sales podcast, Victor Antonio.
1: Thank you, Janice, for having me. Super excited to have this conversation with you.
0: Right. Okay. Now you did say to me to get into the paint. So yeah. So how does someone that has an electrical engineering get to be a, the sales guru? How does that happen? <clears throat>
1: I get that question a lot. In fact, people don't believe I have an electrical engineering degree. I actually have an MBA as well. Uh, but the thing is I started out as an engineer. So we were raised in the inner city of Chicago. My, I'll give you the short version of my sad story here. Uh, Mm -hmm. so my family moved from Puerto Rico in the late fifties. So we were poor, 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 as I always joke. And you know, food stamps, powdered milk, that whole thing. And so I was the youngest of seven. Mom said, you're the last one. Mm -hmm. Um, if you don't go to college, you'll have to go work with your father at the factory, like literally factory manual labor, blue collar job. And I'm like, no, nah, I don't want to do that. So I decided, I remember it, I was in a class in high school. Uh, I was about six months from graduating. And my mother had told me this. I said, well, I don't want to go to work. I said, let me just sign up for school. And so I saw this tech, the Institute, uh, Illinois Institute of Technology. And I remember asking my teacher, I said, is this a good school? He goes, yeah. He said, do you think it's worth going there? He goes, yeah. And he's looking at me like, why are you asking me these questions? So I pulled off the bingo card. You know those little ripoff cards you get. Yeah. To, you file for more information. I sent it in. I did that for two colleges, right? Uh, and looked at civil engineering. I'm like, I don't want to be nice to people. Let's not do that. Uh, I looked at, you know, um, aerospace engineer. The thought of a Puerto Rican in space didn't appeal to me at all. Mechanical engineering. I'm thinking, jokingly, I don't want to fix cars. When I saw electrical engineering, I was like, oh, that sounds. That sounds like I could do something like that. Asked my teacher, do these guys make a lot of money. He said, yes. And, and when I submitted to both, uh, schools, I got accepted by both. And the reason I chose the Illinois Institute of Technology was they had a lower matriculation fee. I didn't have a lot of money. One mm-hmm. required $50. The other one required $250 to submit. And that is how I became an engineer. I did it for the money, Janice. I am that shallow. Uh, fast forward my career. I go into engineering and you know what happens now, right? I'm in the yeah. engineering three years into this thing. I'm going, I hate this. I want to yeah. do this. But I'm making money. So I'm like, I, I hate this, but I'm making money. And little by little I started moving around different positions. I became an application engineer, became a customer service engineer. And then somebody invited me to be a uh to assist salespeople who didn't technically know how to put things together, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And so I started traveling with salespeople as an engineer. I was there like a go-to person when tough tough questions came up. And I realized, okay, this is a great lifestyle. And then I started asking them, How much you make? As a sales guy, how much you make? How much you make? Much you make? And they all told me. I'm going to say May, and I go. Wait a minute! I'm in the wrong business. And so eventually, I moved into sales, and the rest, as I say, is history.
0: Ah, so you're—would you say you're money motivated, then?
1: Oh, I am a capitalist. <laughs> I am a Milton Friedman, Ayn Rand capitalist. And let me let me define that because people hear that and they think you know <laughs> money grubbing, greed, wolf of Wall Street images start popping in their head. The definition of a true capitalist. Is this is the simplest definition? Not mine. It's Ayn Rand's definition. I've always loved it. By the way, if you don't know who Ayn Rand is, she's like the founder of the school of Objectivism. And she talked about, uh you know, creators and work. Like salespeople are creators. We, we go out there. We provide value. It says as long as you're in a value for value exchange, yeah. that's true capitalism. So if I offer you value, for example, if I'm selling a software product that's going to help your company grow and your money, there's nothing wrong with me making money for actually bringing you that product. To your te- or that product to your attention, that to me is true capitalism. If you sell something with the intent of just enriching yourself and screw what happens, you don't even believe in the product. You even know it doesn't work. That's not real capitalism. That's that that's cronyism at that point. So I am a capitalist, yes.
0: So then that's interesting. The description of cronyism is really what many people still feel that people embody.
1: Correct. They do. They do. And I think they have these images like, you know, the movie like Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross here in the U S right. You know, I drove a BMW. Would you drive a Hyundai closer? ABC always be closing, you know, movies like Arthur, Arthur Miller, death of a salesman, all these stories talk about boiler room and other movie. It's, it all makes a salesperson look like they don't care. And I think that's the wrong way to get into selling. You got to be able to care. First of all, understand what your product do and the value it offers and then find somebody to offer it to. In other words, when I look at selling, like I do a lot of sales training, and I look at my, my sales training program as like, like a piece of gold I want to share with somebody. I say, look, I got some gold for you. You want it? I know it's going to help you. I know it's going to help you, right? And so when I present it, I'm like, dude, it's going to help you. It's going to help you increase your revenue, You your close rate, your conversion rate, reduce your sales cycle, whatever it may be. Let me show you how to do it. And the feedback I get back is, I, I, I like your stuff, Victor. I love your stuff. It works. We've been using it. Our numbers go up. That, to me, is when I think the link of value for value is completely Especially if they rehire me again, I mean it's working for them.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Win-win, win-win.
0: It is certainly win-win. Now I've, done, I've spent six weeks, the last six weeks in in um, America, and you know when I compare the differences between kind of Europe mm-hmm. and America, and uh, do, tell, what... do tell, do tell, do <laughs> tell. Well, call you know, calling. Don't hold something... back, Janice. Don't hold back. I <laughs> um, sent some messages to you. Don't you worry. Voice. Yeah, you know, like cold calling is something that, you know, is felt very icky here in Europe. It's not something we promote or like to do. We steer very clear of it. There's even laws and rules to prevent you from, from cold calling people. Whereas when I go into America, this is, well, you know, for, for many industries, that's how they survive. Um, we've moved on more to kind of social selling, you know, relationship building digit through the kind of digital, um, medium. Also, you know, when I go to America, it's still very much the hard sell, the process. Mm. Um, yeah. you know, just keep knocking them down, you know, keep mm. going, don't accept <laughs> that. No. Whereas in Europe, it tends to be more consultative selling um and relationship based selling than like a numbers numbers game now this is a really crude comparison because we're going to find a mix in in both but i'm always quite shocked at the differences in language and the differences in perception uh, Mm. around sales so i don't know what your thoughts are
1: that's really interesting. Yeah, Thank you for sharing that perspective, right? Uh, so basically, you're saying that across the pond, you guys are more sophisticated than we are, is what you're saying. You're, you're higher level beings at this point because you've gone past the Neanderthal level of selling, is what you're saying. I'm yes. joking, of course. <laughs> <laughs> she goes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the perception here of cold calling is it's really interesting because, I mean, social selling is becoming more of a standard, right? Uh, you know, if you look at percentage of outreach, you'll see that cold calling still remains, depending on market, I'm, I'm overgeneralizing here, a smaller percentage, right? Uh, it really depends on who you're reaching out to. So, for example, if you're talking transactional sales, I t- I'll call it like, you know, stuff that doesn't cost a lot of money, so to speak. You know, that's more social selling. Nobody's going to spend time cold calling. Uh, the big cold calling happens when you get to more complex sales, like software platforms, enablement platform, SaaS, manufacturing companies. And so, the way we view cold call calling here is just part of the arsenal. You know, uh, what you guys have done is almost like government intervention in market freedom, right? Because it's almost like, you know, when the government says, hey, you can't do that, I'm like, wait a minute, you're interfering with business here. That's not your role, right? And I get it. I get it. And people say, but it's about privacy. Well, there's ways consumers can actually not answer the phone. I mean, we do it today, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but I always have my phone on do not disturb. It's very simple. And I can actually, you know, uh, screen out my calls. I don't, I don't know. I see the differences. I respect the differences, it's just culture at this point, right? Our culture is very, I got something. I want to show it to you. I'm going to call you. I am going to email you. Uh, I do think though, from my perspective, that the whole, you, you know, you know, uh, eat what you kill type of mindset is really dying out. You know, and I, I, I see, it especially as, you know, I'm a baby boomer which means you know I'm a product of the 60s 70s maybe even 80s and I used to I used to feel that all the time right the, you know like ah, go get them and I see that less now in fact I could actually argue that we've gone too hard over to the other side and now everybody hides behind emails or little quick videos without reaching out to the customer so there's less connection less relationship less con- you know really actually having one on one dialogue so it's a very interesting perspective you provide I think the I think the, the aggressive ABC is dying to us because, let's go to the basic, customers now have more information, they're further into the customer journey, they pretty much know what they want, so it's like they, not like you can lie. I believe the, the the world of selling will be divided into two eras, pre internet and post-internet. Pre internet, ABC did exist because you had the information, consumers wanted you could manipulate, persuade, influence, and maybe get away with stuff. Buyers' regret, buyers' remorse, very high. Today, because the customer, we have the internet, they have access to all the information. If you sell that way, you're just, you may get the short-term sale, but you're not gonna get the long-term business. You know, so I, I see, to me, I see a shift. You may, it may not be, maybe the is and the point is, at, from your side, it's already kind of gone away, this whole, you know, we still have a few people who are left over, and still want to, <laughs> you, know, you know, kill.
0: Okay, so, my perception of you 10 mm. years ago was that was you know kinda, yeah yeah on stage oh my, really I've yes, never it been... was. I... yes it was Janus, you know, could... i'm sorry but it's you know uh you told me so i'm gonna give you it that was my perception of of you it was you know very much you know kind of like but it's, as you say, it's a difference in culture as, as well. Mm. But I've seen, this is my perception. I've it's seen like you're holding too. up and I don't like what I see. <laughs> well, you know, but I've but seen ahead. you like a softening of that in that uh, you're kind of leaning into your personality and your, your humour. Mm. But a lot right. of that was the kind of like content that lots of other people were, were putting out. It was all very, right. you know, like stages okay. where it was all white, male, Men on mm-hmm. stages, and they all came up with the same tone, mm-hmm. and you know, like it was all very rah rah, you know. Mm-hmm. My perspective is the. I, I appreciate. By the way, I appreciate. I,
1: I, I just want to say I appreciate your perspective. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> no, I, <laughs> I mean I mean that generally. It's, it's well, like okay, that's an interesting perspective.
0: But- I, 10 years ago, I wouldn't have had you on the podcast because it doesn't fit with my kind of like values, you know. Okay. And we All said, right. I did uh, talk to uh, Victor about, you know, it. the, I the love thing it. I absolutely loved about. I'm loving, it. It. by the way, I am
1: loving this podcast. I am loving this podcast. Go ahead.
0: The, the thing I um, talked to uh, Victor about was that he posted something on, on LinkedIn about his, his daughter. And I thought, oh, my God, he's the guy. Because I know Victor's got lots of experience and knowledge and so forth. But that's the thing that really humanized him. And I've seen I've, You know, my perception is there's been a softening of that presentation. Okay. okay. But that's my perception. Yours are very different.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's you know what I've learned in, in my old age is that I've learned to accept people's perception or point of view. Because from their point of view, it is true, right? Yeah. You know, in, in the past, I would go, how dare you? No way. Yeah. And I would defend myself. Now I don't defend myself uh, because that is your, you know, a perception. And maybe, maybe I was. I I mean, if you, if I'm doing some self-reflection now, and I don't think I am I was ever an ABC. Anybody who knows me from selling, I was never a hard closer, never a hard closer. I'm more of a relationship closer in the long run. Uh, mm-hmm. But I always used to say, though, you don't walk out of the meeting without knowing. Where you stand. I mean, that, that's why I harder edge. In other words, I wanted to know when I left the meeting, is this for real? Are we doing something or not? Is this still in the ballpark of let's consider it? Or are you just wasting my time? I think that's as hard as I ever got. I never liked hard closing because of that buyer's remorse and then or the buyer's regret. Right. And so I've always, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of long term business, customer lifetime value. And so I don't want people to buy things. If you knew me, and by the way, your perception could have been right back then. But I, for example, if I have somebody who's dissatisfied with something, I give them their money back, mm. right? I'm like that guy, right? If, and I just had a conversation yesterday, just to let you know how, how I roll these days, Janice. Maybe I'll change your perception of me. <laughs> but a company was interviewing me yesterday to bring me in, very large company. And they said, can you talk about this? Can you talk about that? And I actually could have talked about that. And I literally said to them, I said, look, I said I can talk about that and probably do a good job. I said that's not my sweet spot. This is where I play. This is where I'm good at. May I suggest one or two other speakers for you? And there was five people in the room. They just went stunned silent for a second, like nobody knew what to say. And then finally, one guy goes, "Okay, well that was honest." And I'm like, and I'm like, because I've learned I'd rather be honest up front, set the, the proper expectations, than deceive somebody into buying something. In this case, buying me. Mm. bringing me in and i'm not delivering and so maybe i have maybe me softened up over the years but i don't i've, I've never compared myself like you know I, i've hung around obviously like folks like grant cardone grant cardone to me is a hard closer mm. you know we we did a three-day boot camp together i think if you saw us together the there was a stark difference in style yeah because he was very like close and i'm like nah, eh, i don't want to do it that way And so, yeah, my perspective has always been that I want to understand what the buyer wants. If I can align with them, then I want you to buy from me.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, you know, we're always learning and and developing and uh, coming into our own, you know, what we believe. And I I think your example of really understanding what your thought is and actually sticking to that, you could, we can, you know, we're all multi-talented, got loads of experience, you know, we're of a, a, a similar age. So we can do lots of things, but it's actually understanding, mm-hmm. you know, um, w- what is more authentic to where you want to be and who you want to, when you grow up, be yeah. as well. Yeah, it, yeah.
1: It takes a, it takes a lot of, you know, I'm not by the way, I'm not patting myself on the back on, on this, but it takes a lot of courage to do that, mm. because you know, usually we're afraid to lose business, but I guess I've, I've. It, in my past, there's been many times, many times, I've made the mistake of saying, yeah, I can do that. Even though it's not, it's not it's, as you say, we know how to do a lot of things, right? But it's outside my sweet spot. I can do that. And I walked out of there feeling like the customer wasn't fully satisfied. It was okay. It was good, right? And I didn't like that feeling. I didn't like how they felt, and I didn't like how that made me feel. And it's almost like I didn't want the money. And so over the years, I said, no, we don't take things we just are not good at. Like by by good at, I mean, I say excellent at, like, you know, you, as I said, as a capitalist, I walk in, there's got to be a a value for value exchange. So it's a win win. So that's that's kind of my moral line.
0: Isn't this something that we're we're teaching the salespeople that follow me, that that's what we should be doing is advising what's in the best interest of the customer rather than what's in the best interest of us.
1: What's what's fascinating as, as as we're having this conversation, uh, what's ringing in my head is, well, how many times have I had this conversation? None till now. Do You know what I mean? We don't have these conversations about, you know, uh, we'll call it moral rectitude, whatever it may be, but holding the line on what you can offer and provide value on. And we don't hear that. You know, we Janice, you and I watch a lot of videos online of other sales trainers, or other sales speakers, and it's always about closing business, how I did it, how I want it look at my new car whatever it may be ever talks about what is the the moral code the ethics of selling and how should you comport yourself when dealing with customers so I'm glad we're bringing this up I think it's an interesting issue
0: well you know that's what I talk about uh, a lot I, you know I say that the you know br- to be brutally honest I think the sales uh, the sales process much of it is dead customers do not want to be so we should be talking about the the buying process That's where our focus should be. How can we help buyers to buy and understand their journey they go on? It's not about us. No one's interested Mm. in us. They're probably not really interested in our product. What they're interested in, what it can do for them. So we need to understand them more than we understand us. And that should be the focus. So it's a journey. It's no longer a a sales journey. And we need to get over ourselves in the industry and really understand that.
1: Yes. You know, I I think that's why I'm surprised that your perception of me was that I was, you know, the ABC closer because in 2008 is when I made a decision. This was I, I had read Robert Cialdini's book Influence, which if you haven't read it, everybody should read that. And it looked at, you know, neuroscience and consumer behavior, consumer behavior, right? In 2008 is when I launched sales influence with the subtitle finding the why and how people buy. Cause I did even in 2008, I was just saying the sales process is I'm not saying dead, but it was, you know, it was moving asymptotically to zero. That's when I started looking at it from a, you know, a customer standpoint, how do they buy? How do they make buying decisions? And so that, I, I think that's where my, my dissonance right now is about yeah. where you say, well, yeah, I thought you were hard closed. I go, yeah, but I've been looking at the customer, you know, so I'm like, But maybe I was a little hard in my videos, but that's that's always interesting. But I think you're absolutely right. Getting back to the center point, it isn't about how you sell. It's really how they buy Mm -hmm. and how you make them feel. And in my courses, I teach something very simple. And I think this is the simplest concept on selling. I said I can explain sales in one gesture. On one hand, you have certainty. On the other hand, you have anxiety. Certainty, anxiety. Our job as salespeople, presupposing we have a great product or service, is to the certainty of it helping them and reducing the anxiety in making that change. That's it, increase certainty, reduce anxiety, you increase the confidence margin to move forward.
0: I, I really love this anxiety um, versus certainty. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you do that? How do you, you know, what are the steps of going through that? Mm-hmm.
1: The, so let's look at the certainty piece. The certain piece is you're gonna to try to provide data, social proof, Case studies and all these wonderful things, right? And like we know in, in neuroscience, you can talk about the gain, but that doesn't really motivate people, right? Because there's still that fear. So I like to actually lean heavier on anxiety. And one of the things I've learned about anxiety, about reducing anxiety, several things you can do: simplify the language, right? Sometimes we complicate things, and people go, "I don't get it." But uh, there's a couple of brothers. Uh, I think it's Chip and Ben Heath or something like that. The Heath yeah. brothers. Yeah. Uh, they wrote. They wrote a book called Switch. In that book, Switch. Mm-hmm. I had, there was a little section in there. It's, it, it's, I could have thrown the whole book away. I just kept that little section. Here's what they described. And this changed my perception of, you know, of selling and how do you reduce anxiety? Here's a simple formula. He said, there's an elephant and on top of the elephant, I don't know if you remember, there's a the rider. The elephant represents emotion. The rider, R represents rationality. E, emotion, elephant, R, rider, rational, Right. When we make a commitment to do something, right? I say, okay, this is the year I'm going to start eating correctly. And then you go to a conference and you see a donut. So what happens? Your emotional elephant says, ha, let's go get that donut, right? And the writer just holds on for dear life, right? So in other words, you lose out to your emotion. Sometimes you say to yourself logically, if I don't change my life or if I don't change the way I sell, I'm not going to hit my number. I'm going to jeopardize my job. I'm not going to make any money. We need to change. Rationally, you think that way. But the emotional elephant's like, "Ah, I'm not feeling that. I don't feel like changing something. Then the third piece kicked in and this is where everything changed for me. He says, what happens when the emotional elephant, like you emotionally feel like you have to change. Rationally, you understand understand the reason why you should. Isn't this like a presentation, Janice? We go in there selling a product or service. We logically explain why this will benefit them. We also tell them about the impact it will have, not to just them or the bottom line, but to their company and themselves. And they go, you're right, Victor. I feel like this is a good thing to do. In fact, I know logically I have to do that. So now the elephant and the rider are aligned, but they still don't make a buying decision. Let me think about it. Let me get back to you. Let me take it to my committee. Found is that to reduce the anxiety was the third piece they put in there, which is you have to shape the path. And I thought that was a very interesting statement. Shape the path means let me show you how this is going to work, Victor or Janice. I'm say, Janice, here's what's going to happen. I'm glad you're feeling it. I'm glad you understand it. And you see how I benefit. Here's how the switchover is going to work from our software product, their software product to ours. Step one, we do this. Step two, we do this. Step three. And then by step four, we're done. And when you give somebody these steps on how to do something, it's like it reduces that anxiety and they are able to move. It's like when you bring somebody on board. We always talk about onboarding, right? New people, especially new salespeople. And I always tell a manager, you've got to shape the path for them. What does that mean? OK, here's what I need you to do. In the first 30 days, here's what I need you to do on a daily basis, and here's what I need you to accomplish. Here's some key metrics. Hit those. Day 60, second 30 days, here's what you're going to do. Day 90, here's what you're going to do. By the end of 90 days, here's where you're going to be. And the person goes, oh, I can do that. And so reducing anxiety, a lot has to do with shaping the path of how it's going to work once they're convinced that it can't help them.
0: I, I really love this because you could use this for everything. You know, the way that you communicate, even outside of the business environment, when you're not thinking about, you know, buying it and, and, and selling, everyone needs to know the plan, the path. Yes. It makes them feel more secure in taking the next step. Um And, you know, if you're hiring, if you're onboarding, if you're doing um any kind of performance development, then it, it absolutely makes sense. There's going to be anxiety and you want mm-hmm. certainty, but you want to know where, you know, what it's going to look like if I mm-hmm. take this journey and I get on the other side. What is that going to mean and um, feel like to me? So I really love that that you've you've created and I can really see that it's, it's beneficial, not just in sales, but, you know, for life.
1: Yeah, it really, it really calms down that part of your brain like the amygdala, you mm. know, the reptilian brain. Because once you know what's coming or what you're supposed to do, it's that, you know, there's fight, flight, but nobody ever talks about a freeze, which is the third one. And a lot of people freeze because they don't know how. So part of that is really just shaping the path
0: for them. Yeah, yeah. And just getting people moving out of the, you know, the area where they're stuck. Mm-hmm. You know, we know emotionally and logically we need to do something, but we're just mm-hmm. stuck what yeah. is the kind of first step so it's very motivating isn't it
1: mm. yeah. yeah the I, I i discovered this in a very silly way you know I, I should say i i learned it from the book but it was reinforced when i took a a shop class i wanted to learn to work with my hands right and so i took a two-day cabinet building class right and i was like shaking like this i mean literally i remember i walked in early and i told the instructor i said look I said, you want me to build a website? I can do it. You want me to edit video? I can do it. You want me to build a sales process? I can do it. You tell me to do anything beyond a hammer and a screwdriver? I can't do it. And you know what he said to me? Yeah. This is all he said to me. He says, I got you. I go, no, no, but you don't know understand. I've never done this, that, 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 thing. He goes, I got you. And I'm like, okay, I don't know what that means. And for the next two days, he had me. Yeah. Every question I had was very patient, but just that whole, I got you. You know what I mean? Isn't that what we as managers should do? Or you gotta yeah. do sales. I got you. Well, I'm gonna show you how this works. I'm gonna lay it out for you. It's really easy. And so we need to have that mindset. I got you.
0: So that's the mindset you would have with your customers, but it's also the mindset as a sales leader, as a sales manager, you have with your your salespeople as well. It's mm-hmm. got to be tough love, a balance mm-hmm. of tough love, along mm-hmm. with I've got your back, I'm here to support you. Um, so that's the same with your customers, you're changing them, but you're mm-hmm. also supporting them as well.
1: Yeah. I got you. Like I said, we've done this before. I got you. We've done this before. Um, years ago, I took over, I was, um, for the first time I sold internationally was when I, I got the B P position to move to Latin America and run all of Latin America. It was a telecom company, telecommunications company. They'd been there for 10 years, they couldn't get past 14 million, 14.1 million to be exact. They said, Victor, we're going to send you into the region. So we moved to Argentina with the family, and I need you to grow the region. My boss was like, whatever you do, don't sell less than 14.1. You're the youngest VP we've ever put in this position. Within the first 30 days, I had to figure out what I had as a market. So let's talk about scale your sales. I had to figure out what I had. I said, okay, I got it. And then I had to start changing the mindset. Okay, here's how we roll, so to speak. In other words, our company was a I'll call it a high-end telecom company, and our products were, on average, 30% more than our competitors. And we were to sell on value, not on price. And in the next 30 days, 60 days, I said, okay, let me figure out what the structure of this organization now looks like in Latin America. In other words, markets, verticals, how do we segment the market, how do we, how do we size, get the right people in the market, so forth and so on. And in the, thir- in the last 30 days, the 90 days, was beginning to assess sales process, talents, and the ability to adapt. And at the end of those 90 days, it was really, I, I fired about a third of my sales force. Yeah. And that was like, a, that was, that was a brutal shock to the system. And it was one, because I'm giving you the short version. So I don't want you to think I'm just a chainsaw maniac, just cutting people out. I tried to tell people, I got you, but you got to tell me that you need help. I'm telling you how we're going to sell. We're going to sell value, not price. We're going to be structured this way, not that way. Here's the sales process. Any questions? And I would really say, I got you. If you need me to fly in or go to somewhere to be with you, I'll be there. Tell me what you need. Tell me what tools you need. I I cleared the deck of all excuses of anything they needed. So whether it was tools, self-improvement, training, what, what do you want? Compensation plans? Yes. What do you want? And a third just couldn't do it. They couldn't change. The other two thirds learned. And again, some struggled, but they hung in there and they got it. In two and a half years, we went from $14 million in annual revenue to $98 million in annual revenue. And I, I attribute that to, one is, you got to know what you're working with. There's good clay and there's bad clay, as I always say. Good clay you can mold, bad clay you can't. Mm-hmm. And so I've learned early on, give them every opportunity to prove themselves, give them every resource. But at the end of the day, you have to make a determination as a manager, do I have good clay or bad clay? Number two you got to structure your sales force in the sense that it makes sense. Worst people to get the most sales. So segmenting a market was very important. And then the third piece that most people don't talk about, Janice, and maybe you've come across this, is we, we don't talk about compensation plans. And I think that you got to put the right carrot in front of the right salesperson to motivate them. And so I would customize, tailor almost like a suit, compensation plans for different salespeople based on what they wanted. And those three things helped me grow the market. Find the right people, good clay, structure the market correctly, and three, a great compensation plan.
0: I find this um, really interesting because I was uh, having a conversation with Laurie Richardson. We worked together Mm -hmm. on um, kind of sales efficiency of of teams. Mm -hmm. And, you know, research by OMG says that 77% of salespeople should not be in sales. And we're always very very reluctant to take people out of the system we all know those stories of sales yeah. managers that are just pulling out their hair if they've got any hair victor yeah. <laughs> from <laughs> you know spending Pooppa. so much time <laughs> so much time trying yeah. to yeah. um support yeah. someone that really is not supportable and you know yes. they say you fail fast you need to them out of the process yeah. of the sales process as quickly as possible and release the time that the sales managers bog down um and companies are not always brave enough to do that and it's really about assessing the the team, knowing mm-hmm. the gaps and the people and the processes and the the strategies so that you're free to move on and recruiting the right people and you know there's a particular yes. process that that we use that guarantees. So many sales leaders raise their hand when I ask, them, how many of you made a bad sales hire? Yeah, mm. the majority, and it's very costly, oh. but there's sound all of that. So I absolutely love what you say, and you've got to have a strategic approach when you're going mm. in and mm. make those decisions really quickly. And, you know, as they say, fail fast so you can move on to succeed really mm. quickly. they I great had, results.
1: I, I, I got to tell you this one story. There's one salesperson. This guy epitomized, you know, I think the mindset. Because one of the things I ask, questions I often get is, well, did you feel bad? And I said, no, about firing one third. I go, no. I said, I said let me walk you through the mental process. Because from the outside, it looks very, you know, Machia- Machiavellian, right? But I said, no. I said, here's what I did. And I, I'll use one person as an example. We'll call him John. John said, wasn't making his number. So I said, do you need? John says, okay, Victor, I need some training. Gave him training, right? And I said, I said he goes, well, this territory is not performing. Okay, so it's territory now. I said, okay. I said, is there a territory you want to focus in? now that you feel you can be successful? I said, yeah, if I had this territory, one that wasn't occupied by somebody else, or vertical that wasn't occupied by somebody else who was performing, I said, sure, I'll give you that vertical. Is there anything else you need? And then he says, well, yeah, my compensation plan isn't structured correctly. How would you like it structured? So I looked at base salary. I looked at commissions. I looked at spiffs, incentives. I looked at car allowance. I looked at everything. And I said, okay, great. You got all that. Is there anything else you need? He said, uh, yeah, I would <laughs> He literally said this. Yeah, Peter and this and that. I mean, he went for the whole Monty, right? He just went for the full Monty on this one. And I said, okay, so you have everything you need. I said, and if you need any help, you come to me. Other than that, I assume that you're doing okay. And that you're going to deliver on the numbers. And I did this for three months with him. Is there anything you need? He had all the tools, all the resources. I'm ready to spend on him. And at the end of the 90 days, I had to fire him. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel bad because I cleared the field. Again, I'll use that phrase. I cleared the field of any excuse you could possibly give me for not selling. You can't blame the product because we had the best products. You want to blame the territory? All right, fine. I don't believe that's true, but there it is. And then so I think if managers today have removed all objections and they put, they've set them up for success, and they still fail, they need to make the buying decision. Someone told me this: if you're worried more about their job than they are you've got it backwards because they yeah. should be more more worried about their job
0: yeah yeah absolutely but what victor what if there was a process where you could simply assess the sales person based upon other assessments by sales people that you know you've had two million assessments so you know you can benchmark against that person against, you know, this huge database that would identify Mm -hmm. they're not right for the role. They're never going to be successful on the job and because it's a predictive and validated resource. So, you know, perhaps you wouldn't have had to have gone through those those three months. I mean, you did everything you could do, but there is another way of actually doing it as well.
1: I remember, uh, I think his book is called The Toyota Way. And then he talked about Japanese manufacturing
0: yeah.
1: and, you know, Heisen and, you know, those process, right? About how, continuous improvement, how it worked, and how everybody has the five, five whys, you know, get to the root of a problem. And one of the things that, that I read about management theory in Japan was that if I hired somebody and the person was not wasn't making the cut, right? They just weren't doing their job. The hiring manager would approach the person, so to speak, and apologize for putting them in a situation that they could not be successful and then would try to find them something else. Now, now think about that for a second. The hiring manager apologizes to the non-performer for putting them in that position. What a difference in philosophy. Mm -hmm. But to your point is that if we were to take that mindset, I don't say you have to apologize, but you can say, you know what, this is not working for you and we've done everything. I said, let's see if we can find something else. If I value certain other aspects of what you can do, you have other attributes, skill sets, let's find another position for you. It's a win-win again, if we can do that. Leaving somebody in a position where they're failing because you're too afraid, you're, you're, you're a coward to not wanting to fire them or move them to another position. That's, that's not a good thing for anybody. It just really destroys culture within the company it undermines it I should say. it
0: destroys their own self-confidence as well that the true. longer they're in the role and it takes a lot longer for them to ramp up in something else yeah. because they have to start by building their confidence that i think they're useless so you know and i think what's great about people understanding what their strengths are and it may not be the area you're in but mm-hmm. actually you're walking away if this is not the role from you For you, but you're walking away with more information than you ever had before about what is for you, and that can only be a win-win, as you say.
1: I'm 100% with you. I have nothing to add. That's exactly how I feel about it. It's like you really have to shift them over as quickly as you can and not be afraid of
0: doing that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'd like to know. I I know we've gone on here, but you're such an interesting um, person, Victor. So I hope you don't mind.
1: Um, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to change the perception of me. <laughs> look, Victor,
0: you would not have got on here had it not changed, and it changed uh, okay. a long time ago, so, you know, you, you're the you guy. You said that already,
1: <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> so,
0: who is your hero or Shiro?
1: I have a Shiro. Uh, I am an Ayn Rand fan. I don't say that. People think I just throw the name out there. I am like a – like when I look at the school of objectivism and that philosophy, you know, because – Ayn Rand wrote a book, um, I forgot, The Virtues of Capitalism. By the way, she wrote one of the most popular books, still popular today, wrote in the 1950s called Atlas Shrugged, uh, and I think uh, Fountainhead. But this book that she wrote, The Virtues of Capitalism, really laid for me the foundation of my mindset, right? In other words, my moral code. Like, for example, she distinguished the the difference between selfishness and self-interest, almost like a value-for-value equation. Selfishness is when I do something to benefit me and I don't care what happens to you. Self-interest is when I do something that I know will benefit me, but I also know it's going to benefit you. And and I love Ayn Rad. I I think her philosophy, her writing is probably some of the best I've ever read. And to me, she's like she's my she's my go-to philosopher. She's like my foundation in terms of my thinking and my work ethic.
0: When did you discover her?
1: The Five ninety six. Okay. Uh, I was actually in a. Uh, uh, what was the book? Oh, uh, for the new intellectual. I still remember the first book. I'm reading. I saw this small book. It was called for the new intellectual. And I go, what do you, what do you mean for the new intellectual? And I was heavily in the philosophy. Can I take five minutes to tell you an interesting yeah, story? Yeah, yeah. Please. There? The. So okay. So I graduate with an engineering degree. I'm making money. Three years in, I'm not happy, and it's like I have this like like this crisis. Like this this, this mental crisis of like, you know, where do I belong? Where do I fit? You know, that whole thing. What's it's all about type of thing. And I remember I started reading like, you know, parts of the Quran, parts of the Bible. I just started looking at philosophers, social economists. I was reading everybody. I was looking for something. Yeah, I don't know what I was looking for. And that's when I saw this book because I was in the philosophy section. And I saw this book and I was looking for something, but I didn't know what I was looking for. And that book was the, was the doorway to say, oh. Here's how you look at life, and here's how you, you're able to see things, almost like in black and white, but it had lines on it. It had some nice definitions, and here are things you do and don't do, and here's how you don't allow people to take advantage of you, but how you can never take advantage of other people. And I really love that concept, and then from that, on, that point on, I consumed all her work, and I think, like I said, I think, I think she's a genius. That's just me. Yeah. So hero is actually a shiro. Which shocks a lot of people. She, it's, I'm a, I am got a Shiro.
0: Why it should shock people, I do not know.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, first of all, people don't even know who she is. Yeah. Uh, well, oh. the thing is, you know, as a sales trader, a lot of people say it's going to be like a Zig Ziglar. You know, it's going to be like a Brian Tracy. It's going to be like a Tom Hopkins or something like that. I'm like, no, no, no. Or, or, you know, uh, another person I admire, I would put him in second place, probably like Ogmandino. Have you ever read mm-hmm. Ogmandino?
0: Yes yeah like I love
1: yeah. Ogmandino. I met him yeah. before he passed away, so that was a great honor for me, and yeah. I love all his books, you know, so yeah, I guess I do. Have, have you books.
0: always been a reader
1: no, here's what's here's what's funny. I didn't start reading books till I got out of college, like yeah. people would give me books to read, and I'd skim through them or try to you know find the cliff notes it was It was around that time, like three years after I graduated when I was going through this this crisis. I don't know how to describe it, but you know how you You feel like you you don't understand the meaning of life anymore for some reason. Mm -hmm. I thought making money, get the degree, make money, live a comfortable life. I think that's it, right? When I got there, I'm like, okay, this, this, something doesn't feel right. And that's kind of when I started reading and really, you know, first of all, I started listening to tape. I think my first uh, audio tape back the day when they had them in cassettes, you know, little things you break break open, (laughs) it was Earl Nightingale's Lead the Field. And that began the journey of learning. And then I just started reading like voraciously, like, my whole routine is to get up at one or two in the morning and read for a couple of hours and go back to sleep. Wow. And so okay. that, that's my thing. And so I've been reading ever since. I haven't stopped reading. I think I, I've i learned more post-college than I think during college. Easy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I had the most boring job in the world after mm-hmm. um, my kind of school years. And I, I, I discovered books. It wasn't in school at, at all. And I think yeah, it's quite something. interesting what you say, that how it's kind of created – not create developed your character in the way that you think about um life. many people discover that a lot later in life, really, mm. so I think it was a real asset at that point when you were looking for an answer or things that made sense yeah. you know t- to you that helped you kind of to develop your personality and character and your whole perspective on 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 life so and you know these are quite meaty philosophies as as well so yeah they're yeah. they're very
1: meaty, yeah, some of them I couldn't even understand, like the existentialists you know ca K- Cakel H- and all these weird people uh but what what I, well what i what i what I tell people is that you know we came from a very you know so we're here in the u s you know hispanic family, nobody in our family read right, and so you always you know you so there's two ways to look at it there's there's either victim or victor, coincidentally, I chose victor, obviously, but it's like the the power of knowledge is real. I don't know how to tell people this. the power of knowledge is real. The power of critical thinking is real and it'll it'll get you out of so many things and will get you so many things if you just find the content, which is readily available and begin to implement some of the strategies. So I'm I'm like a proponent, like a strong, like self-development guy, you know, like, yeah, don't wait for somebody else to help you. It ain't happening. Don't wait for somebody else to come and say, here's how I'll do it. Nothing. Go do it yourself. Figure it out and get over that anxiety.
0: Yeah. Into the value of your name and how that's have you have you become your name as your name become you you know have you grown into that because it's quite you know your your name is really quite interesting and it you know there's lots of resonance in what you're saying and 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 your name as well.
1: I have to be honest, that thought literally that thought did not hit me till I was like I'm gonna say my late 30s. It was really, because i never, in fact, I didn't even like the name Victor, you know, when I was growing up, because, you know, it wasn't a typical his name, yeah. and so it just sounded weird. I'm like, why am I Victor? And then you, is, you can't even say it in Spanish correctly, Victor, right? <laughs> That's how it, it sounds weird. And so it wasn't until later on, uh, I was reading a study, I think it was Cialdini, they were talking about how a name, you know, you can develop a like a, like a rule of similarity association, I think is the phrase he uses. Like, <laughs> we have the same name. It's like this... Camaraderie. We belong to the same organization. It's like this camaraderie, right? And I realize that there maybe is an association with my name and my mindset. Mm-hmm. And maybe, maybe I don't know. I'd be guessing, really.
0: Yeah, interesting. Well, you're you're a very interesting person, Victor, and I've really enjoyed our conversation. Did
1: I, did I meet? See the expectation. Where am I at here? I need, I need a Janus rating on this conversation, like. Well, uh,
0: if there was, it, out it wasn't of 10, bad. Out of ten, you're eleven. All right. I appreciate and that, you being generous. thank you. Yeah, now you have to remember, in England we're not very good at giving <laughs> out these, uh, you know, that, uh, anything above seven, even okay. if you're at the top of the class. In England <laughs> they will not give you a nine, you know, That's it has to funny. be something more to improve. So for me to give you an eleven, Victor. All
1: right, well, I'm, I'm, I'm taking that, I'm taking that. <laughs>
0: All right. Well, how can listeners get hold of you?
1: Just Victor Antonio. Just type in. I am so popular, Janice, that if you just type in Victor Antonio on the Internet, you will find me. Uh, I recommend people go check out the stuff on YouTube. It's all free stuff. I think I have about maybe 1600 videos. Mm -hmm. Great sales content, great motivation content. Got a couple of documentaries on there as well. And by the way, did you know I had a television show? Do you? Do you know I have a, a on Paramount Network? I actually have a reality really? television show, a whole season. Oh, it's called oh, Life. God. Yeah, it's called Life or Debt. Life or Debt. It's on the Paramount Network. Uh, yeah, I did one full season with my own reality show. Wow, that
0: is You incredible. have a celebrity
1: on your podcast.
0: I do. How <laughs> amazing! Big talk. By the
1: way, I, I I by the way, I always throw that in not because I make any money off of it, but this reality show, I. And I'll close out with this is, is a great show because it's where I help people run their household like a business who are struggling financially. Yeah. And it's a full season where I spend a week with the family, give them the tools, come back in 90 days to see how they're doing. And that's all in one episode. And it's very educational. And I, you know, I feel a passion for it besides selling Uh, this show. I'm very proud of because there's so much educational content in terms of how to manage money and how to get your money right, so to speak, that I hope people will watch life or debt. You can find it on amazon or again it's on the paramount network
0: oh i'm gonna grab that what an yep. interesting um you know new thing to to do that must have been quite quite exhilarating
1: oh yeah we should do a podcast on that one i got stories <laughs>
0: really <You talk laughs> I, got, I
1: got oh wait right. till you see them by the way wait till you see some of the endings
0: all right but okay. I'll, I'll leave
1: you with this teaser yeah by the fourth episode they had to have a bodyguard on set for me just to protect me okay that's how wild it gets so you yeah. have to see it
0: wow yeah, yeah. well you know you, you like to be upfront and honest so yeah. you know sometimes people <laughs> may not quite like that so that that's probably that. very entertaining and interesting <laughs> as well excellent well thank you victor for being okay. a guest on scale yourselves podcast i've really enjoyed our, our conversation and i know we could have gone on for a, another half an hour so i'm gonna have to get you back again and especially after i've I've listened to your, your your show, your TV show as well. So that should be fun.
1: Wonderful. Janice, thank you for your time and thank your audience for listening. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Scale Your Sales Podcast. If you like this discussion, feel free to listen to other episodes or watch the caption show on YouTube and subscribe to future episodes. I would really appreciate it if you would leave a positive review on iTunes. Thank you.